Please welcome to Summit Park Church, Pastor Chad Brugman. Come on, you can do better than that. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You can't ask for your own applause. I just like to, I do that every time. I need to, my wife says, please stop doing that. It's obnoxious. Are you guys good today? I know it's a bit cloudy out, it's overcast, yada, 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 but uh, I've already prayed a whole bunch this week for this service, this moment right here, and it's going to be amazing. God and I already took care of that, so you might as well jump in and join in, right, with your hearts, right? It will not be amazing, though, if we don't do a couple things. First of all, uh, I, I get to travel all over the place and speak at different churches, and there's just different churches in different pockets of America that are just extra special to me, and you probably think, oh, he says this everywhere. I really don't. There's some I'm thrilled to never get asked back to, but anyways, that's another story. This is not one of those. I love when I get to come to Summit Park Church uh, for a lot of reasons. One is uh, Scott and Jen are some of the best pastors on planet Earth with this staff. Amazing. I love them so much. They are so gracious to me, so kind to me. Scott's been an amazing friend to me through all seasons of life, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, they're a reflection of you guys, because every time I'm here, I have been treated so graciously, so kind. You guys are so affirming and encouraging to me every time I'm here. Why wouldn't I want to come back? So every time they call and say, hey, would you come back? I'm always, except for this time, immediately like, yes. Now, now I have to say why this time I had to pray about it, okay? Uh, I can't preach in a few minutes here without, uh, with integrity if I don't get this off my chest. I grew up, born and raised, first 14 years of my life, Santa Cruz, California, Bay Area, okay? And, and in the 80s, I watched my 49ers win four Super Bowls in the 80s and one in the 90s. So I was kind of like a Patriots kid now. We're just spoiled, right? Like, and, and then my Niners finally, after so many years, decades, get back to the Super Bowl uh, uh, this last year, and they're up, what, 10 points with 12 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and then um, Mahomes Mahomed. Don't clap for that. No. I'm in Kansas City. What do you do? Mahomes, Mahomes, you guys know the rest of the story. Uh, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can go back to this church this year. It's still too tender. It's still too tough for me right now. But then I remember Jesus, who we're about to talk about for the whole rest of this time, said, love your enemies. He said, and pray for those who persecute you. So just know I love you guys this week. And I have prayed more than ever for you guys this week because you're my enemies. So we got that off our chest. And I needed to say that. Um, I saw a few Kansas City Chief jerseys in both services uh, when I walked in, and my heart is hard. Anyways, so here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, first of all, clap really good because we want to welcome uh, the North Campus, of course, the South Campus, and uh, really especially everybody that's having right now to watch this at home or wherever else. Can we just give them a huge round of applause? We love you guys. You're so welcome here at Summit Park. And we're just honored, wherever you're watching this from, we just uh, love you. We need to do this. We need to pray. I say this everywhere I go. Um, if not for you guys, it's for my heart as a preacher. This moment right now is sacred. But apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not only a bit silly, it's potentially dangerous. I'm as broken and flawed as you, and I need this message as much as you do. In fact, that's the only reason I think God ever called me to be a preacher was because I needed to hear it more than the rest of you. So I got to pray over it, prepare it, preach it multiple times. It's, I think I'm more jacked up than you guys. So, so I say that to simply put myself in my place, which is if the Holy Spirit isn't here and doing what only he does, this moment is futile. And so what I want us to do is not just quickly jump into something. I want us to honor and revere the presence of the Holy Spirit, because he is here. 
He is in you. If you have received the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the gift we have been given, he's called a gift. The gift you have been given is the Holy Spirit. And he uh, is a counselor, the Bible says. He is an encourager. I love this. He's a comforter. And then the chief role of the Holy Spirit is to just keep pointing us to Christ, keep showing us Christ, keep showing us new dimensions of the beauty and majesty of who Jesus is. So we're just going in the name of Jesus to welcome the Holy Spirit together. Can we do that? I'll pray the words, but will you attach your heart with me? All right, let's pray at every campus at home. Uh, Jesus, we thank you and we love you as our Savior. And you said the best thing that you could possibly do for us when you left was bring us the Holy Spirit. And you did. And Romans says that same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now lives in us. Why would we not want to honor you, Holy Spirit, and revere you and invite you? to just be here in such a tangible, such a palpable, such a felt way. Jesus, be lifted up in these next few minutes. Take my imperfect and broken thoughts and words, and because of your perfect word, make this an amazing moment where we walk out better than we walk in. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and everyone everywhere said, amen. amen. So about six, uh, six seven years ago, um, my wife, who I've been married to now, 17 years, who I just, I just married the right, I love her dearly. She did something really brave. I already loved my wife. I was already super proud of my wife. I thought my wife was already brave. But my wife looked at me one day and said, I think I need to go to therapy. And when husbands, when your wife says that, just go, oh, okay, cool, yeah. That's all you do. You know, so go, I've been saying that for years. But like, like, don't ever, don't do that. By God's grace, I handled it well. And I said, really, what? what's going on? Tell me more. Uh, something she hadn't really done a lot. She's a very, I'm, I'm open, I'm an oversharer. Like, I'll tell anybody anything about, like, that's just, she's very private. I was like, Are you, okay. My wife, and unfortunately, this is some of your guys' stories. And I, I hate that, but some of you will really relate. But my wife, in her earlier years in childhood, experienced some uh, forms of abuse. And you know, if you don't confront those demons and give them a name and look them in the eye and get it out, they will haunt you for a long time. And God in his kindness and grace was wooing my wife to, to go to therapy. And it's something she had to decide on her own because again, she's a very private person. And she just said, I'm going. And I said, go, I'm, I love it, whatever, I'm here for you. And she just, for about a year, I just saw her like, like, a, like coming out of a cocoon, just becoming a, a different, and I already liked the old Rachel more or less the new one. And I'm just watching more attributes of my wife coming out stronger and, and becoming her own person. I just, it was so cool to watch. And then about a year in, her therapist uh, caught me off guard and she bullpenned me in, said, I, I want your husband to come for the next few. And my wife told me like, well, I'm not, I didn't abuse you. I'm not the, I'm a nice guy. Why am I going, right? Like, and she's like, no, no, no. She wants to kind of contextualize, you know, my situation through our marriage to just, just so you could be a best help to me and I can be the best help to you as possible. I said, great. You know, I've, I've been a pastor for over two decades and so I haven't done therapeutic counseling, but I've sure done a whole bunch of pastoral counseling. And so uh, I feel very comfortable in that setting. And my dad was uh, been a therapist for almost 50 years now. And so it's just in my blood. I feel very comfortable. And so I kind of, and I'm, I'm not proud to admit this, but I was cocky going into this. I was, you know, Solomon said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall or a really embarrassing therapy session. And, um, and so I go in and I'm kind of thinking, you know what, not only does my wife get her amazing therapist, but now she gets her pastor and husband to come in and me and the therapist without even talking, we'll probably have some kind of unspoken synergy and we'll just, you know, in my wife's brokenness, you know, we'll just come to her aid in, in heroic fashion, help her out. So I'm glad she finally called me in to do my part. You know, I'm kind of thinking that. And so I go there and for about the first 20 minutes, all the therapist is doing is just asking me a bunch of questions. 
and I'm just yapping away, and I'm a communicator uh, by nature anyway, so I kind of unfortunately like hearing myself talk sometimes too much, and I'm doing all of that, and I think I'm answering everything right, and, and I'm, I'm proud of the work I'm doing there as I'm giving her uh, the talk, and, and about 20 minutes in, she completely throws me off because she gets up out of her seat while I'm talking. She asked me the question. She gets up out of her seat, and she walks over to this big whiteboard like this in her office. She turns her back to me, and I'm looking at my wife like, like, I just kept talking. Did you ever do this? So come on, we all do it. You have a conversation in your head while you're having a conversation with someone? We do, I, I'm doing it right now. I'm still thinking about my homes as I'm preaching you right now. Like, I'm still doing that right now. Like, multitasking mentally, right? And I'm sitting there going, am I getting whiteboarded by the therapist? I'm, I've been here 20 minutes. I'm already getting whiteboarded. Like, you don't whiteboard. I whiteboard people. You don't whiteboard me, right? And I'm getting whiteboarded. And she, she, she walks over there. And I'm just yapping away. And she just writes this big letter, A doesn't turn back to me. I just keep talking. She comes over here. She writes the letter C. And after she writes the letter C, she turns around and she goes, hey, Chad, listen, can I stop you for a sec? I go, please stop me. And, and, and she stops and she says, I love you. I already knew I'd love you from my conversations with Rachel. And I so appreciate everything you've been talking about. And we're going we're gonna to talk some more. But would you mind if I just interjected for a minute? And I go, I go, please interject. And she said, okay, I, I wrote, as you see, A and C up here. And she said, we're going to say for the sake of this conversation that A represents this. It represents the problem. People don't go to therapists just for fun, for sport, right? There's a problem. You go to therapists and go, I got a problem. Will you help talk me through this? Why? Why? Because we want A. And she wrote here, she goes, here's why you think you're paying me, Chad, you and Rachel. Solutions. She goes, you think you're paying me for solutions? And she says, but I don't actually ever think I'm getting paid as a therapist for solutions. Here's what I'm ultimately, I think, getting paid for. And I just want to talk to you about this. And she wrote, she wrote up here, big letter B, and she wrote uh, 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 two words that guys ever since the days of being cavemen don't know really what to do with. She wrote the phrase, fill it. <laughs> Feelings what are these you speak of, right? Like that's what us men do oftentimes. Like she goes, B represents this, this moment in between A and C where, where you're just feeling the situation, right? She, there, there's, this, there's this word for it and it's not explicitly in your Bible. But the longer you read the Bible front to back, you'll see it's implied everywhere. And it's this English word called empathy. Empathy is this, this ability for us, Summit Park, to... In, in our gospel uh, uh, pursuits in life, in our, in our strengthening and maturing and, and growing in our, in our life, it's where we get what's called, I call it heart margin and soul margin. It's where you get heart health. And the beauty of being a healthy person yourself is once you have margin, you can give that health to other people for the glory of God. It's called loving your neighbor as yourself, right? And so she's talking about empathy, and she says, Chad, I just want to submit to you real fast that uh, we, we've talked about the problem for, for a year, and, and your wife knows that problem since she doesn't. We don't need to talk about that one more second, and you think you're paying me, Chad, for solutions, and I'm a dude, so I'm like, I'm absolutely paying you for solutions, but I'm not here for solutions, she says. I said, well, you're fired then, right? Like, that's what I'm thinking. She goes, no, 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 no. The ultimate thing I'm doing is I am here to fill what it's like to be your wife. Because here's what she said I've learned over the years about solutions. Solutions are way more out of our control than we think. Hashtag 2020, right? Whole lot of problems 
very few solutions. And the potential solutions, nobody agrees on anyways, right? So, so, so I thought about this a lot in 2020, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? She said, Chad, I will submit to you that the catalyst for whenever that solution for your wife's ultimate healing and redemption, whenever that decides in, in that God's sovereign time to rear its head, that solution that you think you're here for, the, the greatest catalyst that you can give towards that solution is actually be. She said, Chad, what if you for the next year just trusted this and you decided that your whole goal in your wife's solution and redemption and healing is just to as empathetically as possible understand what it's like to be her based on what she's went through, based on the problem that she came here for. What if you just spent a whole year doing that? You, I'm freeing you up as a man to no longer have solutions because here's what we do. We're, we're capitalists, right? Come on, nothing wrong with that. I love capitalism. I'm grateful, so grateful to live in the United States of America under a democratic society with a capitalistic approach to finances and economics. But because humans are running this government, there are still shadow sides to democracy and capitalism. And one of the shadow sides to capitalism is simply this. You don't get rewarded for feeling it. You get rewarded in our culture for solving it, right? There's a bunch of Fortune 500, especially tech companies, and you know what they have in the name of their companies? The word solutions. I've yet to see a Fortune 500 company in the United States of America with the word fill it in it. It just doesn't happen, right? Because, because as capitalists, talk to me here, time is what? Time is money, right? I, I go to churches a lot in this phase of my life, and people will have me come in and preach like this, but then a lot of times I'll stick around, and they'll, uh, uh, I'll meet with the staff, I'll meet with the pastors, and the pastor will bring me in, and he'll want to talk a lot, and maybe because uh, the church I was at for 14 years, it grew really fast. So they're under the impression I know what I'm doing, which really isn't that true, but I let them think that, so they'll, you know, be, and they want they think they want solutions. So bring the guy in who's been through a lot of the, the cycles of, of church growth and, and all of that different stuff. And what I do is I quickly, as fast as I think I can respectfully get away from C, and I try to go to B as quick as possible. Because just like the counselor said to me, she said, Chad, your wife is so much more dynamic and brilliant and creative and wise and discerning when she was whiteboarding me, she's telling me all this, then, then I think you and me even fully appreciate. I, I don't think she needs a lot of help here. I think what she needs is a lot of this. And I, and I go to pastors and I go to churches and I, I do the same thing. This pastor who thinks he, he needs solutions is so much more brilliant and wise and dynamic. And, and almost all of them that I see are just that way. What they really want is for me to come there and go, the job you do is awesome. And then look at them and go, but the job you do is really, really hard. How can I help? And it turns out being more therapeutic than it is solving problems. It, it's, it's empathy is what I'm banking everything on when I come into churches. Is I want to give myself to know what it's like to be that, that, that group, that congregation, in that state, in that church, doing that thing. I, I, I really want to, I, I want to fill it. So here, here's what I want to do. I want to go to a story real fast. It's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. And it's this moment with Jesus where empathy is just on display in such beautiful fashion. Now, the story is very familiar, especially around Easter time, because it's the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from dead. South side, you guys, raise your hand. North side, if you're familiar with that story, at least to some degree, know what I'm dealing with. Okay, this is where Jesus literally raises a guy from the dead. Resurrection, right? So naturally, 
when Lazarus gets raised from the dead in this story, it gets top billing, as it should, because we're people of resurrection. That's what Christians are. We are people of resurrection. Resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, quit going to church, quit having church. There's no reason for it because that's the crux of our faith right there is the resurrection. And so naturally, that gets top billing in the story as it crescendos and gets closer to the end. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, right? But I want to do this for a minute. I want to give what, what we usually use as a sub-moment, a sub-point. I want to give it top billing for the sake of empathy because it's one of the most amazing moments. And in this story contains my absolute favorite verse in all of the Bible. So here's what happens. Obviously, Lazarus dies. We know from the scriptures that Jesus was very close to Lazarus and his family. He had two sisters, pretty famous in the Gospels as well, named Mary and Martha. Jesus was very close to them. And when they, uh, Lazarus died, they were in such, as you can imagine, distress and grief and mourning that Mary and Martha looked at a couple of friends and said, could you go get Jesus and tell him that Lazarus died? Jesus was in the town right next door doing ministry when Lazarus died. And so these uh, gentlemen or ladies, whoever it was, they went and they told Jesus and they got there and you can tell how much Jesus and Lazarus were, were, were close because they go, Jesus, they interrupted him during ministry in another town. He was probably like, what are you guys doing here? And they interrupted and said, Jesus, the one you love. So there's intimacy there. The one you love, Lazarus, he's died. And then Jesus looks back and he says something really kind of obscure and interesting, and I don't fully even still get it, but I think I get it now a little bit. He looks at him and says, okay, this, 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 and it's, it's, it's John chapter 11, verse 4. Put that up on the screen. He says this. He looks at him and says, all right, this sickness will not. Everybody say will not. Will not. I, want, I want you to remember this. Say it again. This sickness will not end in death. Now, can we agree that when the creator of human breath and human existence and all of the galaxies that surround planet Earth, can we agree when he says this will not end in death, that it's not gonna end in death? In other words, Lazarus has been dead almost two, they got there two days after Lazarus died. He's been dead now 48 hours and Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. It's as good as gold, right? Colossians tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible image of God. The Bible tells us that Jesus uh, is uh, the name above every name, that at that name every knee will bow. We sang it in the song. Every tongue will confess. The Bible says that there is no name under heaven with which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus. John 14, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. Jesus is the creator. So when he says this will not, that promise is as good as gold. Can we agree that's a solution, right? Jesus says, I got your solution right here. And then it says something, uh, goes on to say this, this sickness will not end in death. He says, no, it's for the glory so that God's son may be. And do you know what it goes on to say in the story? Jesus waited two days to leave that city. It doesn't sound like the one you love is, and he goes, okay, I'll be there in two days. You don't do that when someone's been dead for 48 hours. I'll be there in two days. That doesn't sound loving, does it? It sounds indifferent. It sounds callous. It sounds unkind. But, but here's the deal. Jesus said, I'm going to do this for God's glory. And so there's a tradition in the Jewish religion, and they've always had this, where they don't have a funeral for at least the first 72 hours. Because in their tradition, they believe that the spirit doesn't leave the body even when it's dead and quits breathing. The spirit doesn't leave the body, they believe, for at least 72 hours. 
They took this very serious, so they wouldn't at all do any burial stuff. They would just leave the body there. People would be praying. People would be waiting, hoping that maybe, just maybe, that they would get the miracle of of a body coming back to life, that spirit regenerating. Um, And they believe that. And so Jesus, strategically, because he divinely multitasks better than all of us, Jesus strategically waits two more days to get there. So it's day four. 72 hours is up. Now... He's dead, and they're starting the funeral stuff. Now he's decomposing. Now the smell of Lazarus is proving that he is dead. Why? Jesus wanted to make sure when he said, Lazarus, come forth, there was no scientific explanation for what they had at the time. He wanted to make sure that when he said, Lazarus, raised from the dead, they knew that it was the power of God, not anything else. So he gets there on day four, and they're starting their funerals. Now, in the Jewish culture, some of you will know this, some of you won't, but... They, they, they do what's calling, uh, called sitting Shiva. You ever heard of that? That's not, like we do funerals, it's in a day, then we go and we bury them and it's over, right? No, they have funerals for seven days and seven nights straight. And in these funerals for the seven days and seven nights, family and friends come at different times and they all sit Shiva. And what they do is unless the people uh, who are family members want to talk, they don't even really talk. It's not time to theologically and philosophically try and figure out how such a horrible thing could happen to such a great guy like Lazarus. They're not sitting around trying to get God off the hook by figuring out how he could allow something like that to happen. They are weeping and they are wailing and oftentimes they're very quiet. In fact, have you guys familiar with the Bible read the book in the Old Testament called Job? It's the first book I read as a new believer um, because I needed a job. And when I was a new believer, they kept saying, the Bible's your manual for life. And I was like, well, I'm early 20s and need a job. And so I, sent, I opened it up to this book called Job, and I said, okay, they're going to tell me how to get one. Worst possible book you can read as a new believer. Last one I would send new believers to. It's just right out of the gates. It's just met with such, it's like Lazarus or Job has the worst possible week ever. He loses everything, all his, all his kids all his land, all his riches. And here's what's weird. Kind of like Lazarus, the Bible says he was the righteous man on planet earth at the time. And that's his treat for that, right? His friends show up, the Bible says in the first few chapters, and they're beautiful. Because you know what they show up and do? They sit Shiva. They're like in B mode. We're not here to explain it away. We're not here to, again, wax eloquent about the philosophical and theological reasons such a horrible thing could happen to someone as good as Job. They shaved their heads, which was a metaphor for vulnerability. They shaved their heads, which is a metaphor for, you know, the the ancient scripture that says, from the dust you were born to the dust you will leave, right? Naked you came from the womb, naked you'll go back to it. So they would literally make themselves that disfigured and vulnerable by them shaving their heads, and then they just sit in the dust for seven days in silence. And they just meet each other on a much deeper soul level than words can do. And they cry together. And they mourn. Remember remember what Jesus said in, in the Beatitudes? He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be fixed. Mm -mm. Someday, eternally, forever. That's a promise. That's as good as gold. But man, solutions are not rarely on our timetable. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Not fixed, comforted. So they sit there for seven days and seven nights, Shiva. And then you know what happens the minute that's over? 
there's 40 chapters in Job of all of them trying to figure out theologically what happened. All of them assigning blame, one to the other, pointing figures, arguing back and forth. Job's the only one who, who won't give up on God for this horrible tragedy. His wife's furious at him because she's not in the same place. They probably need a little marriage counseling. At one point, she looks at Job and says, Job, curse God and die, right? Probably, but I get it. She's bitter. She's scorned. She doesn't know. I, I hear it in a Jersey accent, like a, an old lady with a cold coffee and a cigarette going, Job, curse God and die, right? Like it's over. Like that's how I hear it. That's my crazy mind. But she's just mad, right? You think that, and, and Job just keeps holding on to his faith and on to his righteousness. And God says, even if God slays me, I will yet praise him, right? They were doing such an amazing, beautiful thing when they were just sitting with Job and his wife in the madness. And then as soon as that technical period was over, they instantly go into what we humans love to do, which is wax eloquent about all of the different aspects of what we think. We're all trying to defend God or, 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 or be mad at God, and we're all trying to figure something out like intellectually so our hearts can have some reprieve. And, and what, what I think Jesus shows us in the Lazarus story that we'll get back to right now is that your reprieve is always gonna be catalyzed by this more than this. But you're gonna always think if we can just get a solution to this conundrum, we'll be off the hook. And one thing I love and thank 2024 is that there were so few solutions for such an extended period of time, which we're still sitting in that, that Jesus was probably wanting to say, I, like my counselor, I think this is more important for 2020 than anything else. Because I believe, Summit Park Church, we should have, as gospel people, the most heart health and heart margin on planet Earth. Because we are products of a gift. We, we, we aren't living by works. We aren't learning, living by anything we can do or we can pull off in our own strength. We're not here for any other reason than we are products of the gift of Jesus Christ's uh, innocent, divine blood on the cross. That alone right there, the more you, you think about that, the more you worship into that, the more you pray into that, the more you let that become your identity, the more heart margin and heart health and healing you start to have over the years. In a year like 2020, we should have had our best times of evangelism, not, not with microphones and crowds because we lost all those. It should have been with this thing called empathy. This is like, this is like, solid gold for us kingdom people is to have moments where, where we can be people who, who aren't just trying to fix it because Jesus fixed it 2,000 years ago. The solution is there. We're just now retroactively going back and catalyzing people, pointing people to the cross, and a huge evangelistic factor in that is being people of empathy. Because you're unafraid of the worst parts of people. You're unafraid of this world's uh, 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 difficult times. You're unafraid of people's messes. Because you know that there's a solution and it has nothing to do with their works or their efforts or their striving. It has to do with the grace and grace alone of Jesus Christ. And we just, in our empathy, we provide a bridge so when they do hear the gospel preached, when they do ask you, where does this empathy and this kindness and all this heart margin for you to love me the way I want to love myself, where does that come from? Then you get to say, this guy named Jesus, the name above every name, and you can run to him. And he will not only forgive you, that's just where it starts. He will take care of you. He will watch over you. He will sit with you. Because see, when he got there on day four, the funeral had started. And I know our funerals, a lot of times, we're very, we, we try to stay as put together as possible and as calm as possible, but not Jewish people in the ancient world. They would wail. 
just they, they weren't hiding anything. They weren't there for any decorum. They didn't care about what the visitors thought. They didn't care about being distressed. They would wail their way through a funeral. And here's my favorite verse. I told you I'd get there. It's John eleven thirty five 35, because here, here, here's, here's what happens. Jesus gets to the funeral. Now, what did he already promise in 11, verse 4, that he would do? This sickness will not end. Don't you think the kindest thing the Savior could do is walk past everyone wailing and go, calm down, everyone, watch this. <laughs> Lazarus, come forth. And everyone goes from crying to ball dancing. You're like, dun, 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 right? like, just amazing, like, coolest thing ever. We just saw him raise someone from the dead, and it's someone we really love. How amazing is this, right? Doesn't that seem like the, the pragmatic, uh, solution-based, practical thing to do? The kind thing to do, right? No, 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 no. Jesus, and we don't know the timetable. It could have been minutes. It could have been hours. I think it would probably would have been hours based on their tradition because they would do it for seven days. Jesus says, take me to the tomb when he gets there. And it says, when he sees everyone weeping and wailing, here it is, my favorite verse. You ready for it? John eleven thirty five. 35, put it up there. Jesus wept. I don't want to pass over that too quick. This is what's getting taught billing in the Lazarus story this weekend. I know it's not the biggest moment, but the older I get, and the more I learn about Jesus and the more I fall in love with Jesus, the more in my heart this gets top billing. Because here, can I just give you my opinion for a minute? So this isn't the word of God. I'm putting the word of God down and I'm just giving you, you're adults here. You can decide what you think about this. But the older I get and the more life I live, the more I think this about that moment where Jesus weeps. Like for a year, maybe two years, the miracle would have been like, like a catalyst for revival. Like, Jesus is amazing. He, he literally broke all the laws of science, and he rose somebody from the dead in our presence, and tons of witnesses saw it, and people would have been fired up. But, but here's what the Bible keeps trying to hint to us about miracles. We're obsessed with them, and they never give us what we think they're going to give us. Miracles, although beautiful, and God does them, and we're to pray for them, and we're to ask for them, and he reserves the right to do them when he wants to do them. We always, when we get them, we get over them faster than we think, and we want more to compensate. It's almost like a drug a little bit, if we're not careful. This is why even one point, Jesus went to a city and he said, if I did the miracles you're asking me to do in your town, the way I did in that other town, you still wouldn't believe. And the Bible says, so he did no miracles in that town. Because the miracles is just a means to a greater end, which is relationship and intimacy with Jesus. So here's, here's, what, I, here's what I submit to you. You do with it what you want. I think as the years went on, the, the resurrection got further and further in the rearview mirror and became less important to their walk with Jesus. And you know what ultimately became important to them years later? Remember when he sat there and wept? For hours, probably. Like wept, not a, not a condescending, I'll give him a tear even though I know I'm gonna be the hero here in a minute. No, he wept, why? Because he's sitting there trying to understand what it's like to be us as humans, broken, flawed, hurting. He's trying to understand the sting in death which the Bible says is the last curse to go. He doesn't want to get back to heaven too quick without, without the world knowing, hey, I know what it's like to be you. Think about this. Jesus does nothing arbitrarily. Nothing. Not a word he speaks, not a breath he takes is arbitrary. He wastes nothing, right? And think about this. He spent three days solving the human problem of sin and death. Three days. He camped out in, in C. 33 years he spent in B. 
That wasn't on purpose. See, if I'm Jesus, and thank, here's exactly why I'm not Jesus. If I'm Jesus, and I have to go transactionally shed innocent blood for the, for the guilty blood of humanity, here's what I do. I go down there, and I tick off uh, Herod immediately. I tick off Caiaphas, the high priest, immediately. Those guys were the ultimate ones that were, were catalytic because of the people and putting Jesus on the cross. I tick them off as fast as possible. I get them to put me on a cross within 24 hours uh, uh, because I'm such an affront to Rome and such an affront to the Jewish temple. I, I get them to put me on the cross. I spend a, a, a day in the grave so everybody soberly thinks about this, this new guy. And then I miraculously raise from the dead a day later. And then the next day I ascend right back to heaven so I can sit back on my perfect throne of shalom and peace, right? Because God could, God could fix it any way he chose to fix it. How important is this to our faith? Empathy, feeling it, loving our neighbor as ourself. How important is it for Jesus to come and say, I'm going to spend 33 years being tempted, as Hebrews 4 says, in every way that you were yet without sin. Why? So we can have relationship restored, so you can approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in your time of need, right? That's what Jesus does. That's how, because if you've been married more than three minutes, you already know this. The bedrock of any healthy relationship is trust. Miracles we know from the scriptures don't, for all they do, they don't really build trust long-term. It's a short fix. Empathy is Jesus playing the long game. Because guess what happened to Lazarus? Spoiler alert, after he was raised from the dead. He died later. And Jesus wasn't there, and he didn't get raised from the dead a second time. What do you do when you, you don't get that miracle the second time? What do you draw from? Where's the fuel come from? Where's the hope come from? Where's the blessing and mourning come from? It comes from when Jesus sat there and wept with you. You go, all right, we're going to get through this. This is so hard, hardest thing I've ever walked through, but we're going to get through this. You know why? Because we serve a God who doesn't just fix things. We serve a God who deeply fills things. And he is with you. Even though you walked in 2020 through the valley of the shadow of death, you do not have to fear evil. Because we have a Savior that came down and proved that he is trustworthy. Not just in the cross, but 33 straight years. I would have came down as a grown man, done it fast. He came at one point as a zygote. As, as, as as dangerous as that is, as vulnerable as you can be as a zygote forming in the belly of a, and he chose a teenage girl, come on, we know the Christmas story, who, who was from a, a backwater peasant town that got made fun of in the Bible, Nazareth. He chose to be a little kid. He chose, guys, think about this. He chose to be a middle schooler. Who does that? <laughs> he had acne probably. He had crushes on girls because it said he was tempted in every way we are. He didn't come down here for the sake of romance, but, but, but I guarantee he had his eye on a few. And I had definitely when you open blind eyes and raise people from the dead, you know there were some ladies wanting Jesus too, right? Like he had to, like he knows what it's like to be you in every form and fashion. This is why when we talk about cultivating the presence of God, we're not doing it from a legalistic, you better pray more, you better read your Bible more, you better show up to church more. God could care less about your attendance for any other reason than he just wants you to be in his presence. That's why next month, do not miss a week starting next week because you're doing your reset series where you're talking about spiritual disciplines. And band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. I'll wrap this up. I, you guys have been amazing. Thank you. But do not, let me give a shameless plug here. Do not miss one week during the spiritual disciplines. 
When you talk about things like reading the Bible and prayer and worship and whatever else they choose to talk about when it comes to spiritual, because all spiritual disciplines are is a means to a much more beautiful end, which is cultivating and practicing the presence of God. And as Moses said in Psalms, in thy presence there is fullness of joy. So you know what I say to 2020? Thank you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak French here, so for those of you more godly than me, I apologize, but 2020 just sucked. Pardon my French. Sucked. I don't, I don't, arguably, not arguably, I had the hardest year of my life. Many of you, that's the same story. If that wasn't you in 2020, things actually kind of went, I, I celebrate that with you. Because if it went great for me, I'd, I'd hope you'd celebrate. I, we celebrate that for you. But, but keep taking notes because you might, might need this for another year. I, I got w- way more problems than I got solutions in 2020. I, I, for the first time in a long time, was no longer a salary worker. I didn't work for sa- a salary. I worked as a contract worker this, this year going into 2020. And my job was to fly places and talk to large crowds. And guess what the first two things to go were? <laughs> So in, in one week in March, I lost 80% of my year's work with text messages from pastors in, in one week, 80% of my work. We almost went bankrupt this year. I'll say that for one ounce of sympathy, you don't have to feel bad. I thank 2020. My brother is walking through brain cancer. <laughs> That's a horrible thing to walk through any year. But in a year where there's a, a, a new strand of a flu, that will kill, particularly they said fastest people over 80 who get it, and people who are immunocompromised with chemotherapy, that was my brother. Just to throw on the top that I had lost all my work, my my brother and best friend is, is going through that at the exact same time with next to no solutions. He's now on his second, they thought they got it all, tumor out, gone, got it all, and then months later they said, we need you to go back on chemotherapy. He's back on chemotherapy. Very few solutions, but can I tell you why I can with integrity thank 2020? Because I have grown more this year than I have in any other year of my life. And although I don't fully see yet the fruit of that, it's still underground work that's happening. Nothing's sprung up yet. I just know in the deepest parts of my gut, although this year has been horrible and I'm so grateful it is over and we're moving forward and I'm optimistic about it. Here's what I know. I grew this year. I got closer to God this year. I learned the value of being desperate for the presence of God. When that psalmist said, better is one day in your house than a thousand other, I used to kind of in one part of my mind go, but really? And now I'm like, no, better in your courts is one day than a thousand other. Like desperate for the presence of God to meet me where I'm at. And, and, and regardless of this, I know this is happening all of the time. It's his honor. And this, Summit Park Church, is where you grow. This is where you change. Listen, solutions are good. I'm not saying they're not good. I'm saying, though, this is where you grow till you find that solution and until the next thing comes where you need another solution. James put it this way. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, 2020, of many kinds. Here's why. You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. James 1, 2 says, and perseverance, listen to this, must finish its work. Why? He says, so you may be mature and complete, not lacking 
anything. You grew this year and you don't even probably fully realize it. We're too busy wanting solutions, thinking about the chaos, trying to figure it all out. You are growing right now. And fruit is going to spring out of the ground that is going to be life-sustaining and beautiful for you. I speak that over Summit Park. Every single one of you in the sound of my voice, in the name of Jesus, you watch. You lean in to the presence of God. You keep leaning in and let God minister to you in your mourning, in your grief, whatever you lost in 2020. Listen, grief's not just for those who have lost a loved one. Grief is a spectrum issue. And you don't need to minimize your grief because someone has more. Wherever you're at on the spectrum of grief, Jesus is meeting you there right now. And while he is ministering to you, you without even knowing it are getting muscle in your spirit. You're getting strength. Although we are outwardly wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day because of the presence of Emmanuel, God with us. So for 2021, listen to me. I don't know when the solutions are fully coming, but I know this. You're stronger this year. You have more space for this. We have an opportunity and an obligation in the most holy, beautiful way to be the people on earth with the most, the most empathy to give to other people. And it is a catalyst to point them to Jesus and the cross. This is what we all are qualified to do because we've all been through it. And so I'm just praying that this is one of those years where you get that, where God just gives you opportunity after opportunity to be with people and you get to watch. It brings so much joy to watch yourself loving on other people without condition, without any expectation of anything in return. You are at your freest. You are at your most mature. You are at your best. Joy comes when you're able to just give yourself unapologetically, unjudgmentally, unconditionally to other people in their mess, whether they're sinners or saints or anyone else. That is where true joy starts to come. And we have been trained in 2020 to be those people in 2021. That's what I speak over you guys. That's what I want for this church. That's what I want for the greater Kansas City area. Oh, that's, that's all I want. I don't want more Super Bowls. I don't want more Patrick. I don't want any of that. It's football. I want empathy, right? I'm just kidding. Sorry, I had to get one more in before I leave. Now, listen, I have to wrap up. I'm a talker, so I just keep going. Um, I'm going to wrap up right now. You guys have been, again, every time I come here, you've leaned in and you've been so kind. I can see it in, in your faces. South Campus, I can see it through the camera. People at home, I can see it through the camera. I can't. And I just want to say thank you. Can we do this? I'm going to, I'm going to have you guys stand up at, everywhere, and I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. It's from the Old Testament. We were told to pray this over each other, and it's because what I'm about to say, God really wants for you. It's not some liturgical prayer for the sake of religion. It's what God really wants for you, and then we're not going to just quickly get out of here. Would you guys give me just like three or four more minutes, and can we worship our way? Because we're singing a song called Faithful. And that's, what my, that's my review of 2020. It sucked and God was faithful. Hardest year of my life and God was faithful. Wouldn't wish my year on anyone and Jesus met me there the whole time and wept with me. And I'm better for it and you're better for it. Now, Jesus, I pray that you would bless every single person in the sound of my voice. God, that you would keep them. God, that you would cause your face to shine upon them, that you would turn your countenance toward them. Father God, I pray that you would be radically gracious to every single person in 2021, and we would walk out of the doors of this campus and every other campus better than we walked in. Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, only you can do this. So we give that prayer over to you, and we all say in your name, Jesus, amen. Let's worship.